Okay, looks like we're at uh, looks like we're at time here. So, good evening to you all. Welcome back to our study of First Corinthians. We're going to be picking up in chapter one where we left off. Although I'd like to do a running start, get us into the text. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by the wisdom of your Son, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but indeed glory and wonder to we who are being saved, we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might receive this wisdom of your Son, that we might grow in it and be nurtured and mature in it uh, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the furtherance of those around us, and for the glory of your name. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so by way of just getting a running start, we had not gotten very far in, just through, it looks like, verse 9. So I'd like to just read those first nine verses quickly. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, and again, I emphasized or pointed out that I think Paul is emphasizing this theme Right off the bat, I don't think this is incidental. It's the church of God, not of Paul, nor of any other leader, nor of the Corinthians themselves. Church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So uh, sanctified, they become holy ones in Christ Jesus. Called holy or called to be saints. Together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. So the name of our Lord Jesus Christ recurs uh, three times right away in the opening verses here. Here's the first. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you or among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, but the ESV has a spiritual gift, which I think makes contextual sense. As you wait for the apocalypsis, the apocalypse or the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, So again, very clear in Paul's writing that he does not think we sustain ourselves, whether we are sustained by Christ unto the end, and that he will sustain us in this way, guiltless or uh, unaccused in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the idea that we are waiting for that day of our Lord Jesus Christ's return when he is revealed, And that on that day of great judgment, we will be found guiltless or unaccused. Um, We've got some extra Bibles, if anybody does need a Bible, over here in the corner. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So, uh, let's see. Sustain you to the end, verse 8. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And again, all our hope is in his faithfulness rather than our own. God is faithful by whom you were called. That is, God called you. This is a heavy emphasis just all throughout Paul's writings that it's God doing the doing. So we'll call this monergism as a theological theme 
from Ergos work and Mono that there's one doing the work and that one is the capital O one God. And you just see how that permeates basically every sentence that Paul writes. So <clears throat> it is God who is faithful by whom, the whom there is God, God called you into the koinonia, the communion of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and fellowship is fine. It's just kind of generic in 20th and 21st century English. Like, you know, this is a fellowship hall. It's not as though he called you into the fellowship hall. It's not as though he called you into a group of like-minded individuals with which you can chit-chat and fellowship with, right? This is the koinonia of Christ. It's the communion of the church. Okay, so far so good. So that was where we had gotten so far. And in many respects, the major themes of First Corinthians are already starting to show, show themselves. Paul laying a foundation here. Okay, so let's go on. I appeal to you, or I exhort you, brothers, So, which I think is great. Don't want to overread the text here. But you see Paul's authority, and yet he's not lording it over them. He is their brother. And I think that, in a, in a phrase, even though that's not quite Paul's explicit intention, he shows the beauty of authority within the church and the beauty of office within the church. There is an authority, there is an office, but it's not one of lordship over another, looking down your nose at, at another. Um, it's from brother unto brother. I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not a mere personal opinion of Paul, but as an office bearer under Christ. And you have then the repetition from verse 2 of the name. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree is fine, but it's really, it's lit more literally speak the same thing. You all speak the same thing. So here is one of many instances we'll find where we see very plainly that the goal of Christianity, the goal of Christ, the goal of the pastoral office, the goal of the church is not diversity in faith, but unity in faith. That's the goal to which we aspire. So that all of you agree and that there be no schismata or divisions. That's the schisms, the schismata among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. All right. There's a period. So we better take advantage of it. You don't always get those with St. Paul. Now, this is uh, then worth noting here, and we'll spend more time on this concept when we get to chapter 11 because here in chapter 1 let there be no schismata among you it's obviously the goal but then in chapter 11 St. Paul will write it is necessary that there be schismata among you that those who are true may be demonstrated, revealed, shown so that is to say that God permits divisions within the church that those who are true will be revealed those who are false will be revealed very similar to our study in first john is it not i, I mean john uses different words but conceptually it's the exact same there are those who went out from us and thus showed themselves to be loveless having another christ so the division is really has to do with saved and unsaved 
mm-hmm. not having to do with how you worship or style of worship or any of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're arguing later on, you know, I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos, mm-hmm. and all that other crap. Yeah. That's not what he's talking about in this division. He's talking with those that are saved in the church and those that are on, period. I, I think yes, but I don't think it's that clear yet. Okay. I don't think it's that clear yet. So where, I mean, where Paul's going to go in the immediate context here is if you just drop down to 12, we're getting a touch ahead of ourselves. What I mean, so he's going to describe what he means by these particular divisions is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or Apollos, etc. So I think best to read schismata here as the kinds of divisions that are taking place over personalities or teachers within the church. Later, when he refers to it is necessary that there be schismata among you, they're doctrinal. It's in the context of the Lord's Supper. That'll give us, that'll give us opportunity to talk about the schismata, the divisions that take place within communion. Okay. So we've got this word denomination which isn't a very biblical word. Okay? Uh, the root is, is usually namas, so name of another name. But that what does that have to do with anything? Okay? What, we're, what historically is the case is a different communion. Okay? That's then the origin of excommunication, or it is the origin also of closed communion, which frankly, historically, is a redundancy. (laughs) It's a wild idea that one would belong to the, say, Roman Catholic communion and desire to commune at the Eastern Orthodox communion. They're two different communions. There's mutually exclusive doctrine such that there's a division where one simply cannot commune at both places. So all of this, once upon a time, self-evident, just in the, I think I would attribute it uh, to the ecumenism that took over in the 20th century, the kind of, uh, the kind of spirit that preceded the world wars, to be sure, of we're all going to form a utopia and kumbaya our way into a glorious new world. And of course, then as the world wars ruined that, the movement in the church was, well, it failed in the world. Let's try to make it happen in the church. And ecumenism softened all these concepts, but only in a way that it confused them in our minds. So to have a different, in our language, denomination is to have a different communion. It's it's necessary that there be divisions like that, not that it's God's will that there be multiple communions, but that there be a true communion and that those who would be false would leave. And if they're going to form another communion, so be it. That's better than feigning like you all agree and not, which is a lie. It's a lie to say we disagree on these fundamental things, but let's keep holding hands and singing Kumbaya. So, for example, I mean, just to be concrete, and since Paul's going to do this in, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, <laughs> How can you come to the same altar, to the same table with someone who says, this is bread and nothing more, and someone who says, this is Christ's body and nothing less? You can't. It's spiritual insanity to think that you can't. 
you're you're basically calling each other liars <laughs> or in error in profoundest error and of course ultimately Christ who speaks the word one of those two is calling him a liar so yeah the the nature and reality of differing communions and divisions within the church goes all the way back to the first century all the way back to the apostolic writings themselves again going back to first john there are those who left and formed their own communion their own koinonia uh if you want i think there's a book by the title um the eucharist in the first four centuries by Werner Ehlert, and it's of great value just for a historical study because it'll open your eyes to the reality of differing communions or differing what we would call denominations that existed in the first four centuries. So denominations, divisions, differing communions within the umbrella term of Christendom have been around since its inception. And that's really important, I think, because Roman Catholics, uh, Roman Catholic apologists today will come in as if it was like all one church in the West, at least, until the Great Schism with Eastern Orthodox in the 11th century. It's when it's properly dated. And then look what the Reformation did. That, that's completely misleading, entirely misleading and not historically accurate. Okay, so certainly more to be said uh, as we get into chapters 10 and 11 on the schismata on the deeper level. But here at here at chapter 1, um, where he introduces it, let there be no divisions among you. I'm just picking back up in the middle of verse 10. But that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Here's the occasion of such a statement and what's in Paul's mind when he makes this statement. For it has been reported to me by uh, those of Chloe or Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So we don't know basically anything else about Chloe. But somehow Paul has caught wind that there are these significant divisions in Corinth. And what's and here's what's happening. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, which always strikes me as hilarious because the I follow Christ is like the trump card, isn't it? It's like the non-denomination, it's like the first non-denominationals. Oh, we're not not we we're non-denominational. We're just Christian. We're not. <laughs> Funny, you're completely baptistic. You're just saying you're non-denominational. In that sense, everybody says they're non-denominational. Everybody says they're of Christ. So, again, just kind of wild, wild and ridiculous dishonesty. Um, whether it's intentional or not, you can be the judge. Okay, so that's what's going on there. You've got people, and it sounds like each one. So if that's ta- if that's to be taken at face value, then sort of everyone's saying, hey, this person is my patron saint. This is who I identify with. We'll talk about what the, uh, at least what Lockwood from the Concordia Commentary series uh, thinks that this translates to in the in the modern world. But let's get Paul's answer first. 
13, then, his answer is Christ divided. Clearly a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, no. Or were you baptized in the name? Now, here's the third referent to the name, because obviously you were baptized in the name of Christ. Are you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. Why does he pick himself here? Because he doesn't want to in any way besmirch the others. That's why he's using himself here, right? Christ divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, who we heard about last week in Acts uh, 18.8. That's Crispus. He was the, the ruler of the synagogue next door. And then Gaius, who is thought to be um, the one whose house is right next to the synagogue, in whose house they're meeting when they all come together. So I, I, I give thanks to God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why does he say, I thank God? It's rhetorical. It's um, hyperbolic because it, he's saying, look, uh, I, I'm so glad I didn't do more. You'd all claim me, <laughs> right? So I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then parenthetically, he says, this is great fun. I did baptize also. So as he's writing, as he's, as he's speaking, the amanuensis in all likelihood is writing these things. And, you know, Paul, you can just see the pregnant pause where he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's an even funnier one coming up. So, I, oh, no, it's right here. Yeah. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, which is hilarious because Stephanus is with him. So, you know, you can almost picture, and this is Lockwood's take on it too, you can almost picture St. Paul right there thinking of all the names back in Corinth and trying to remember who he baptized. And he doesn't even think of Stephanus and his fan because Stephanus is right there with him, you know. Maybe Stephanus even clears his throat. <laughs> think it was more than just those two guys, wasn't it, Paul? So, yeah, this is uh, added in after the ink of verse 15 has dried. <laughs> It's not a word processor we can just delete. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Of course, there you see a whole household baptized. In the ancient world, households just were everybody. It was the, was the pater familias, in this case, Stephanus, his wife, it was children, it was slaves, it was everyone. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, which is one of my favorite proof texts. Because if I struggle in one area, it's the church admin of, did I cross every T and dot every I? Did I get everybody there typed into the computer properly? Here's, here's my proof text. Paul says, I don't even know whether I baptized anyone else. Which is hilarious, too, because this is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you can see now that inspiration through the Holy Spirit doesn't mean some sort of negation of human limitations of human thoughts. Paul is the instrument right along with his forgetfulness uh, in this particular case. And the Holy Spirit uses this as well. So the scriptures are fully human. They're just also fully divine. And that shines through in a verse like this. But, but it's also kind of, they kind of strike me as kind of dumb people in that they're, they're making accusations of 
following Paul and Apollos and Peter and all them. But they're they're all together and the truth sent them out. So um you know when they're saying this, it's almost like what part of knucklehead did you get? Because the church commissioned them and sent them out by two. So this group almost like they're off in the backwoods someplace, not picking up a, something what the church already did earlier, you know, when sending them out. Mm-hmm. So why are they why are they dividing? Paul sent Apollos to do certain things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's almost like Yes. Yeah, right. Well, so I'll give you, I'll give you Lockwood's take on the modern phenomenon, what he thinks is going on. And then you go, okay, I could see how maybe something like that would happen. Um, first, just to wrap up on the family of Stephanus, let me give you these words from Lockwood. This is great. This family had been the first fruits of Achaia. So 1615 of, um, so at the end of this epistle, we'll learn that they were noted for their significant service to the saints. Same verse. Why then did Paul momentarily forget him? when Stephanus was with him at the time in Ephesus, together with the other members of the Corinthian delegation, Fortunatus and Achaicus. One suggestion is that it may have been precisely because Stephanus was with Paul that Paul forgot him. <laughs> Preoccupied with recalling names back in Corinth, Paul momentarily failed to consider the Corinthians who were in Ephesus. We might even imagine that there may have been some amusement as Stephanus himself or one of the other delegates jogged Paul's memory great just great okay Pastor, yes Pastor, yeah two questions um so paul's talking about he only baptized uh those corinthians but he may he, that doesn't leave out the possibility they baptized others in other cities i guess and number yeah. two this is often used as a proof text among anabaptists to say See, Paul was one of the greatest. Uh, he wrote half the New Testament, but he thought so little of baptism that he didn't even baptize. He said he made a point of saying so. They use that as a, as a proof text to diminish the importance of baptism. Yeah, well, good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> that's a really poor argument, and this might be about the only text you could try to uh, make that make that argument from. Uh, I think, I think what would be Paul's point in diminishing his role in doing the baptizing? It isn't some profound theological point. I mean, go look where Paul treats baptism as a topic and never once does he disparage it. He speaks of it in, uh, I mean, extremely, extremely profound terms, being buried with Christ as you're immersed in those waters, being raised with Christ as you come out. And that's Paul, having your sins washed away, being clothed in Christ. That's Paul, profound things. Why Why rhetorically is he doing this now, diminishing his role as a baptizer? Because he's diminishing his role, period. It's not about Paul. That's how the rhetoric is working. It's not about Paul anymore. And he doesn't want to disparage the other guys. It's not, he doesn't just want to come out and be like, it's not about Apollos or Cephas. How does that make him look? Like maybe bitter that this church that he founded is now enjoying these other teachers more than him. So he's careful not to disparage them, their work, their ministry. Of course, I mean, there's no even, there's, there's no certainty whatsoever. In fact, it's very likely that Cephas was never even there. That's Peter. Yeah. Could we guess that this would be the wisdom of Christ and the Christ himself being baptized? That's, that's, 
I mean, kind of, kind of, yeah. Just, I mean, just because Christ didn't baptize doesn't mean that baptism is worthless. No, right. I'm making that argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in the same way that just because Paul doesn't make sure he baptizes every last person he can doesn't mean that baptism is worthless. But the That's downplay the if he has, and people say, "Well, I was baptized by Christ, and you weren't." Yeah, maybe so. Maybe, maybe so. I don't so know. Paul was saying, otherwise, you would be saying. Yeah, yeah, could easily be the case. Could easily be the case. Okay, so yeah, I think I think we don't need to be all worried about that, that Paul is somehow saying baptism isn't important or disparaging baptism. I mean, that it's kind of an insane view anyway, because baptism is what's going on. It is the initiatory right into the church. It's... All the pagans are being compelled to be baptized. That's your entry into the church. So, they, I mean, you would have to rip this verse entirely out of its context, its historical context, to try to make that case. That's just a, kind of extreme, though, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's crucified, all crucified for you. I mean, these are all exceptional yeah. elements. So it's just one in this uh, stream of the most important I agree 100%. Yeah. And really, the thought continues into 17 as well. Um, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, that marks the transition to the next phase of the argument, but it concludes the thought uh, specific to baptism. So I think the point would be that you are that baptism is something that God did to you through the hands of human ministers. It's not the human ministers that are important. It's not if I baptized you or if Apollos baptized you, which he probably, who knows, he probably didn't baptize anyone there. Same with Cephas. And Christ clearly didn't in the sense of like Christ didn't come down from heaven to specially baptize people. So Paul's, you know, distancing himself from that in the sense that What's important is that you have the one baptism that comes from God, the one baptism of the Holy Christian Church. That's, I think that that's what's underlying his argument, even though it's not, I, I certainly admit that's not explicit. Okay, so let's, uh, let's meditate on, on it from this angle and find the, uh, yeah, like I said, we'll hold off and do the fuller treatment of denominations and all that. First Corinthians 11, when we get there. Here's what Lockwood asserts in regard to this particular version of schismata. The modern phenomenon in Christendom that most resembles the situation in Corinth probably is the tendency to idolize the quote-unquote brilliant or even the not-so-brilliant theologian or the outstanding churchman or evangelist. Such movements can assume cultic features and the dynamics can be operative apart from any organization or name. So I'll just give you a flavor. He's quoting uh, Carson. I don't know which Carson this is. Probably the one out of Dallas Seminary. What Paul finds inexcusable is the kind of fawning and defensive attachment to one particular leader that results in one-upmanship, quarreling, and jealousy. Implicitly, such allegiance is making too much of one person. It verges on assigning that person godlike status. 
In fact, a little sober reflection reminds us that many Christian leaders properly contribute to our spiritual growth and fruitfulness. But in any case, it is God alone who gives life and fruitfulness, however much he uses means. So maybe the take home is not to get too overly attached to any one human preacher, teacher, personality in the church. You can think of many modern versions of that, including maybe our favorite online pastors, or um, that's kind of one of the unintended consequences. You sort of get celebrity pastors, and that's uh, to be eschewed. Of course, we can listen to those guys, take you know, take what they what they say. That's great, if, as long as it's in accord with God's word. Um, but to start identifying of like I'm a disciple of this guy. Well, I'm in the Lutheran church, but I'm really a disciple of this guy, or I'm in the Reformed church, but I'm a disciple of that guy. I even think that some of the weirdness with modern Catholicism, you know, you get your uh, your patron saint. It's kind of a little weird, <laughs> kind of a little sectarian-ish, kind of a little cult of personality-ish. So, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, when we were in New Mexico, we, for a while, for lack of any place else to go, went to a Methodist church. And they explained that not so long ago, every year, the pastors would all get together from a zone or whatever, and then they would be sent to different churches than where they had come in from. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to pack their bags, come to this meeting, and then be sent someplace else. And I was told they did that to prevent, you know, any pastor becoming, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see some wisdom in that. I can see our our sinful natures outsmarting even that. Um, you know, you, you can get a flavor for this too if you have like a multi-staff parish or a multi-staff church. You know, I'm of the senior pastor, I'm of the associate pastor, I'm of this guy or that guy, this theologian or that theologian. And, um, I mean, even in the life of faith as a congregation, <laughs> we've had to avoid that kind of thing uh, in our past. And I think it's just that, it's a reminder that we're all um, of Christ and of his baptism and as, of his teaching and can be thankful for individual uh, teachers, theologians, laymen who have been of profound help to us, but we shouldn't um, allow that to divide us. Now, who's I, preaching I, this week? I'm sorry? That who's preaching yeah, this who's week? who's preaching this week? Exactly. Exactly. Why, is the, why are the vicar's sermons always so well attended? <laughs> i've got the trump card there if that ever starts happening i'll just start preaching shorter that will uh yeah 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 <laughs> no i mean these are tongue-in-cheek these are the exact kinds of divisions that we're being warned against here they're more much more here personality-based type divisions than they are uh some sort of doctrinal division. And that's maybe the distinction to make, because when we get into 10 and 11, we're going to see doctrinal divisions taking place. That's going to be treated in a different way. I think we're blessed here to have you as our pastor teach the adult class, uh, and there are no other options. Because other church models, the pastor doesn't teach adult classes, and then you have two or three or four options. Mm-hmm. And then that's where you can have this festering of, Oh, I like this plan. I like mm-hmm. this and so forth. Uh, here, you know, we hear God's word directly from you and I'm sure that you think of nothing under it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we're just blessed, I think, to have you uh, lead and, and offer us the best of the Sunday. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. We're hearing it directly uh, for years. Yeah, and I think that that is healthy because the pastoral office is a teaching office. It is sort of the teaching office in the church, and it should be that. And everything else should be delegated maybe by him, but it should be by and large his teaching because he's accountable and he's responsible. And that's also what really underlies the whole idea of a divine call and that whole thing. And, and you know, the ordination done by the church and the installation done by the church is, I mean, you've exacted vows from me not from this guy or that guy who might come into our church and and teach. So there's, and, and likewise, the congregation as a whole has said, okay, this particular man fits the qualifications to teach in this place. The whole church hasn't said that about some other teacher, even though he may well be qualified in such a way. The whole congregation hasn't said that. So some of this is by is by design, and it has to do with our Catholicity as, as a congregation. I run up as probably Luther and Elvis, the worst nightmare in the denomination and the theology named after. Oh yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. Exactly. Nobody wants. Yeah, nobody wanted. Not, not Luther, not Calvin, not anybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the the um, other than naming it after people, the attempt has been made to name it after the heresy. So, like, <laughs> like the Anabaptists, uh, and that's where we were called evangelicals. You know, the evangel is the gospel. So, like, we were, that was the first attempted slur was, oh, these are the gospel people, you know, who are interested in the gospel, (laughs) which that's maybe one to bear with pride, you know, (laughs) the the first, uh, the first uh, evangelicals in that sense. Okay, so the schismata here are more cult of personality based, not doctrinal not doctrinally based. And that's what is being dismissed by Paul. No cult of personality. And indeed, um, you know, a, a faithful pastor of a congregation is trying to conduct himself in the office in such a way that a faithful man with a very different personality and a very different set of uh, skills, maybe, can come in and do just fine. Right? You're not trying to... no no true Christian pastor is trying to make a church based on his personality. Um, but he's trying to keep the church he- healthy and objective in a way that another faithful man could come in and fulfill the task and fulfill the role. Because what good does it <clears throat> do to build a church or a congregation around a single man? Men fail. Men die. Men get sick. You know, there's all kind of, what a faulty foundation. So to have a church built on the word of God and on Christ working through individual personalities, we can give thanks to those for, the, for those individual personalities, but never in such a way that we miss the big picture that God is the one at work. God through his office, through his church, through his word and sacraments. So right off the bat then, and, and it's very easy to lose the forest for the trees as we study God's word and do so in depth. Every every so often it behooves us to just back all the way out and get the big picture. He's given his introduction. He's laid the foundation of the gospel and the profound truths we have in God through Christ. Salvation, our salvation being his doing, our being called into the church being his doing. 
And then he's going to address this particular issue, and he's going to do so in very short form, basically by just saying, stop this nonsense with the sectarianism. And then he's going to get on to his next point. And his next point really has to do with humility. And it's probably, it's probably the biggest or uh, maybe, maybe a better way to put it. It's the golden thread <clears throat> that runs throughout all the other errors of the Corinthians, including this first one. Because this first one is, I'm of this guy. This guy is better and I'm better because I've got good taste. And it's this sort of self elevation and this elevation of the human rather than of God and Christ. It's boasting in a man, it's boasting in ourselves and our, and that's what this kind of like um, leaven that leavens the whole lump is what's infected the Corinthians. And so Paul is going to try to deflate that, de-leaven that and bring them down to the truths that it's all and entirely up to God. Our boast is in Christ and him alone. And that's really how it flows logically into verse 18 and what follows. So if there's nothing further, I'll just continue on then. All right, not seeing anything further. So maybe just to get a run up at 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom not with a Sophia Lagoo, like a, um, oh, it's almost, yeah, it's really difficult to translate like wisdom of words or uh, words of wisdom, uh, words, no wisdom of words, eloquence, something like that would be fine. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That is to say the, the gospel, the cross of Christ, Christ being crucified in the message, the proclamation of that Christ, uh, of that message is not to be seen as dependent upon the skill of this preacher or that. And in fact, Paul says, I intentionally came to you not showing off my eloquence, not showing off my intelligence, but keeping the main thing, the main thing, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power in your eyes is what he means. Not as if the, you know, the cross of Christ could ever in and of itself be emptied of its power, but that they would look and say, well, it was Paul who persuaded us. Paul says, no, I want you to be persuaded by the cross of Christ. That's the real power. And that's very different, very different than what's going on in Corinth and the ancient world that so highly values rhetoric, where it's not so much the content, it's look at the way in which that guy presented the content. That's the guy I want to follow. So it's the, uh, the, the media, not the message in that kind of, in that kind of world. All right. Now there really shouldn't be any break here between 17 and 18. And you can even tell that by the English word for these ideas are absolutely connected. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross, halagos to staru staros is the cross for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And it's a present tense perishing. So those who are present tense perishing receive the word of the cross as though it was uh, moronic, folly, foolishness. 
but to those who are being saved, present tense, so who are actively, continuously being saved, it is the uh, dunamis to theu, the power of God. Dunamis, yes, ultimately becomes the word dynamite, but it's anachronistic to reread that back into the text and say that the gospel is the dynamite of God. It blows everything out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think it's the same Carson who he's quoting from Dallas Seminary. I think D.A. Carson is his name. He's got this great book called Exegetical Fallacies. It's got to be, it should be read by every seminarian everywhere because it's got all kinds of warnings against the, these anachronisms. I didn't get it till I was uh, in the parish and I started reading that. It's just amazing how much kind of nonsense gets passed off by well-intentioned pastors who are just guilty of these exegetical fallacies. Usually there's no harm in it other than we just look dumb. But here's one. If you ever give somebody preaching on the, the gospel is the dynamite of God, you can roll your eyes. <laughs> Okay, well, then the word of the cross, that's what we're going to preach. Not our own wisdom, not our own eloquence, not all eyes on us, but all eyes on the cross. Acknowledging and knowing that for those who are perishing, it's going to be foolishness. For those who are being saved, they're going to see it as the very power of God. Not human will, eloquence, the actual word of the cross itself. Paul then basing this on a Quote from Isaiah 29, 14, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, or equally as valid, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will thwart. Now, this is God in the Old Testament. So here you can see that this is a continuous theme with God. It's a theme that runs all the way through the scriptures. You, you can probably just quickly go through your memory how God always chooses the lesser in order to do his work. So you can think of uh, um, who's more glorious, Abel or Cain, in the end. Abel. He's the he's the uh, a great and wondrous type of Christ. He's the shepherd whose blood is shed by his brother. His blood cries out unto the ear of God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and Abel, of course, <laughs> means something like nothing or of no account. So it's the one who is of nothing, of no account that God chooses. Remember another episode, I'm just kind of picking randomly here, but King David, was he the firstborn and the one who obviously looked like he ought to be a king? No, he was the lastborn. He was the youngest. You get this theme even earlier than David, kind of extending from uh, Abel on down of the secondborn being the chosen of God. Even after God himself and nature itself says the firstborn has the privileges and the firstborn has the honors. And by the way, we kind of need to bring that back again. And I say that not as just as a firstborn, of course, but, <laughs> but, there, but there's a truth to that. There's a hierarchy of our children. And again, we're so, we're, we're so egalitarian in our mindset that we're, we're want to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater there. Even biblically speaking, in the order of creation, there's a, there's an ordering among, there's a birth order that that's there, but God, and that understanding that then opens our eyes to understanding why it is that God chooses the second born or the last born, because he's picking the, the one that should not be great to be great so that the glory belongs to him. And that's a thoroughgoing theme throughout the scriptures. Sorry if I insulted any, uh, not firstborns didn't mean anything by it, but that's, um, 
That's what's in view. That's what's in view. So then you have this idea of the wise, those who should be great. Remember how Saul is described as a king? He's he's the tallest. He's the handsomest. He's the strongest. I mean, he's the guy that you would say, he is our king. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Nobody would look at David and say, he should be our king. So that's the kind of theme here. And so the the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning are the things that God overturns. And there's a point to that, a purpose to that, and it ultimately manifests in the cross. That through this most foolish and unintelligent, through this most weak and cursed event, God works the greatest wisdom, the greatest power, the greatest glory. That's where we're going with this. Okay, in 20, then you have Paul riffing on this by way of rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the uh, scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Of course, the debaters of the age were all around them in Corinth. Has not made, uh, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And obviously, this question is to be answered in the affirmative. Yes, he has. I think we can see that too. When you look at our quote-unquote great institutions, the Harvards, the Princetons, the Ivy League schools, the great think tanks of the world, uh, the, the most brilliant businessmen or scientists we know when it comes to spiritual things, they're by and large fools, by and large clues. And you, you can see that even, um, I mean, just remarkable ways, remarkable ways that men who are so intelligent, so many areas then get to the cross and the message of the gospel and their objection to it is just foolish. I mean, it's the kind of thing like a seventh grader would think of. So you can, that, that's the kind of idea that Paul is pointing out. It's a, it's observable to the Corinthians. And I think, of course, because this is thoroughgoing from Genesis through Revelation for, the whole of the cosmos, it's it's observable by us also. Okay, then 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What does that mean? God will not allow himself to be known by the world through its reason, through its wisdom, through its own pursuits. And that was what God planned. It is also, you know, this is this is very much akin to what Luther is doing with the hidden God and the revealed God distinction, especially the bondage of the will. The idea here that God has set up the world and set up his presence in the world in such a way that no one can come to know who he is by observations of the world or by wisdom of the world. He can't get there. It's where the, like, if you just take a single lochi, like the problem of evil isn't meant to be resolved by us. God doesn't want it to be revealed. God wants it to be a problem and a sticking point, because if you could work your way through that, you could work your way to God by way of your own reason, by way of your own wisdom. So there are these various sticking points that are unsolvable 
and God wants them unsolvable. That's really what Luther means by the hidden God. God intentionally hides himself behind these problems and neither gives us the solution nor the means to come up with the solution because he will not allow himself to be apprehended in that way. He refuses to replace Christ and his revelation in Christ with philosophy and reason. Because if you could come to God through philosophy and reason, God says, no way, not a chance. And I'm going to set these things up so that you're absolutely precluded from that. The only way that you can come to God is through what Luther calls the revealed God or the preached God. And that's the word of the cross. That's what Paul's doing. So effectively what Paul is doing here is what Luther is doing in the bondage of the will and with the distinction of hidden God, revealed God. Yes, sir. Isn't that the bottom line? Two weeks ago, we had a couple of studies studying science and bio. Isn't that the bottom line of all that? Mm-hmm. Yep. The scientist, because of the way he thinks, has a natural, more difficult way of understanding the way of God, right? Because he's trying to reason his way to understand God, and God is in, in the hidden form, as you said. So, uh, be that simple. We didn't have to spend two weeks on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a in a sense, that's right. So, I, I mean, to try to speak of it objectively as possible, reason is a gift that God gives to us. Science is a subset of that reason. Science is a form of reason, isn't it? That's really what the scientific method is: is a form of reasoning. And a, a lot of what we did over those two days was pointed out how the quote unquote scientists aren't actually following their own definition of the scientific method. They're not even true to their own reasoning structure. They're constantly overstepping that, making pronouncements that they have no reason or right to make. And that's where you kind of get into this, then what people call scientism. And it's a religious component. You've departed from this methodology of reason and you're doing something else. And that something else is religion. Because now you've concocted your own creation story, your own origin story, your own anthropology, your own nature of humanity, your own ethics or lack thereof that flow from that, and all kinds of other things that are traditionally understood as religion, as religious. So that's where we can make a distinction there. Yeah, God will not allow himself to be approached by human reason. Because though it is a gift given to us by God, it is tainted by sin. And whether that human reason is in the form of science, a narrow kind of reasoning, or whether that reason is in the form of this philosophy or the other, some other intellectual or rational approach, it's precluded. God will allow himself to be understood and known fully only in Christ and him crucified, only through the word of the cross. And you're going to see St. Paul say exactly this. So this isn't my wit or wisdom or Luther's or whatever else. This is right from St. Paul's, how God set up the world from the start. And the ultimate reason for this is that no human being can boast, save in Christ. That's the only boast that's allowed. Okay, so just once more at 20, and we'll try to make some headway here. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. And again, the world through its wisdom, does it go grow closer to God or further away from God? Obviously, obviously to us, further away from God. For since in the wisdom of God, that is God in his great intelligence, 
designed it so that the world did not know God through wisdom. Rather, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. That's the revelation of God in the word of the cross. Jews demand these other another mode than the cross. Jews demand signs. And of course, you can remember all through the New Testament, they're constantly pestering Jesus. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Demonstrate to us. Jesus is doing this at virtually every turn. That's not enough. It's never enough. That's by design. And I've often, I, I mean, I've often reflected on this, and sometimes I've had occasion as a pastor to say it to people. No. Well, if God would just do this miracle, I believe. No, you wouldn't. The second it happened, you dismiss it as some fluke or something else. And I know that because he does miracles all the time and you don't see him and you don't believe. So Jews demand signs as the way in which they can be sure that this is God and seek the revelation of God. And Greeks, or here better, Gentiles, seek wisdom and think that they're going to know God through wisdom. And and I hear, of course, you know, you you can think of even like... um, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These are men who are ultimately pursuing the highest truth, pursuing God, pursuing um, the true nature of all things through wisdom. And God says, nope, that's not going to happen anymore. That's going to happen through science. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, I don't mean to um, overly like break my arm patting Lutherans on the back, but maybe I will here. This is why Paul doesn't say We preach Christ risen. Christ is risen. But we preach Christ crucified. Why? That's the humiliation. That's the lowliness. Not Christ in his glory so that the glorious ones can attain to him and attain to life. But Christ the humbled, Christ the crucified, Christ the lowly, so that the humble and lowly can be joined to him. That's ultimately what Paul's doing with this. And it is why Christ crucified, not Christ risen, needs to be the center of all evangelical preaching. Ultimately, even death is undone not by the resurrection, per se, but death is undone by the death of Christ. By his death, he destroys the power of death. So, in in a great irony, the crucifix itself is no greater image. There is no greater image than the crucifix itself for the resurrection. An open tomb. Well, there's lots of open tombs, empty crosses. There's lots of empty crosses on that particular day. There were two additional empty crosses, but Christ crucified by his death. He destroys the power of death. Hebrews says by his death, he destroys the, the one who has the power of death. Satan. So Christ crucified is what continues to be preached. We're going to see that in, ele- in um, 1 Corinthians 11 in the context of the Lord's Supper. So often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's life until he comes, the Lord's resurrection until he comes, and all the Lord's death until he comes. His death is the power of life. His death is what affects all things. So this emphasis on the crucified, this emphasis on the death, this emphasis on the atonement, Thoroughly biblical, thoroughly Pauline. We preach Christ crucified, not signs, not wisdom, but Christ crucified, which is, of course, a scandal on a stumbling block, something you trip over and smash yourself into the pavement. A stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks or Jews and pagans, be a fine translation. It's what he means. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now you see this language of calling that's going to repeat. And of course, we saw it earlier that God is the one who calls. It's where, and I think I was doing this on a Thursday morning study, that it's not an accident that you have been brought into the church. God has called you through means. Those means may be one, your parents, or a thousand. <laughs> means maybe your spouse, maybe your friends, maybe all kinds of things. Maybe wrong things. I just want to go to church because I'm a good person. <laughs> but then, lo and behold, you hear the gospel and you become a Christian. The calling of God is intentional and specific. And it's not it's not to be taken for granted. You can, we can, if we dismiss it as, oh, it's just chance or it's just circumstances then we're doing, we're actually lying and, and doing God a disservice and injustice because it is God who calls. And to those who are called, then we recognize neither the need for signs or wisdom, but rather that Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. That's 24. That's why Lutherans are always and ever preaching Christ, 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 Christ. And Christ is the center because in Christ we have a revelation in the son. We have a revelation of the father. And by the way, this isn't just um, Paul on this point. It's also John on this point. John's gospel is very much. And remember, um, I think Philip says to Jesus, okay, show us the father. All right, Jesus, we totally believe you. Now, could you please get out of the way so that we could see the father? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. have I been with you so long? And still you do not know me. I am the Father are one. What is he saying there? He's saying, if you see me, you see the Father. In fact, the only way to see me, to see the Father is to see me. Uh, we get we get this laid out in John's gospel right away in the first chapter that um God has been exegeted unto us by his son. So apart from Christ, you don't know. As soon as you say, as soon as you say, Okay, get out of the way, Jesus, so I can know God, you've just lost God. You don't have God at all. As soon as you say, I want to see Jesus, who is the express image of the invisible God, in knowing Jesus, you know God. All right, so as promised in some of our uh, promotional materials, which I think consisted of a blurb in the email this week at Faith, um, epistemology was one of the topics. And this is, um, epistemology is sort of a how we know what we know, okay? And epistemology or, or the basis of knowledge can be seen right here in the New Testament in a wonderful way. That Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our power. Christ is our knowledge of God. Christ is our knowledge of the world and how it works. If you take Christ away, you doesn't matter how, whatever else you think is power or wisdom, it isn't. Okay, and then this great line, 25. For the foolishness of God. I mean, is, does God, properly speaking, have foolishness? No. Is everybody jumping all over Paul? From No. Because you can see here, too, something I, I think we should grasp as Christians, and that's the flexibility, the, the use of language and concept and hyperbole and dynamicism that's really important so that we're not nitpicking people over, you know, God couldn't be foolish. You know, Paul says the foolishness of God. He means that tongue-in-cheek, Right. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
and the weakness of God. Can God be weak? I mean, it's an equally absurd idea. The weakness of God is stronger than that. So again, he's speaking of the cross. He's speaking of Christ crucified, that this is the foolishness of God and this is the weakness of God. And yet it's greater than all the wisdom and all the strength of men. That's the point. So then what does that do to a hierarchy? What does that do to one's ego? What does that one do to one's spiritual prowess? I mean, it it utterly kind of inverts it, upside downs it, uh, wrong side outs it. It um, really changes everything because it's not a denial that there is wisdom and power or lack thereof, but it's that wisdom is located in a foolishness of God and power is located in a weakness of God. And that foolishness and that weakness are the cross of Jesus. So if you would be greatest of all, you must be servant of all. If you would be exalted, then be humbled. These teachings of Jesus now are just being spelled out by St. Paul. That's a kind of a subset of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. Yeah, it can be, can be. Mm-hmm. So that that distinction, for all intents and purposes, of the theology of the cross and the theology of glory comes from the Heidelberg Disputations uh, that Luther wrote. Um, they never seem to take on the quite the steam or import that they took in the 20th century when there was sort of a Luther Renaissance and a rediscovery of his thought. And those categories, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, can be helpful if understood in these Pauline terms. Unfortunately, I have to kind of put an asterisk over that distinction and say, be careful when you hear people talking about that, because the chances are it's wrong. <laughs> the chances are it's going to be distorted. How, it, how, for example, how it's frequently done is theology of the cross is justification. Theology of glory is sanctification. Anybody who's doing sanctification is doing a theology of glory. Get back to the theology of the cross, which is justification alone. That kind of theology destroys the scriptures and subverts our proper understanding. And and that's probably out there in the world today. Most of what you see is that kind of importation of those definitions into those terms. So caveat emptor, when it comes to that distinction, the way Luther meant it is fine enough. But uh, then again, and it's more nuanced, obviously, and does even as a concept, even as it holds true, um, just doesn't rise to the prominence in Luther, in the original Lutheran context that it does for some odd reason in the 20th century. Pastor, I, I think that's also Gerhard Ford or Ferdy, isn't it? Yeah, Ferdy popularized that with his book on being a theologian of the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, his take on the Heidelberg Disputation, which his take is really, do, in many respects, does some violence to Luther's meaning. Okay, I'm seeing that we're four minutes over. I, my apologies. I am sorry to run over. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. We'll simply pick up here next week. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for coming, especially on a holiday. Appreciate it. God's blessings on your week. Thanks for joining us, you guys online. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Looks like we have eight of you on there. That's great. I'm going to need to get a bigger yeah. screen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank All you, right. Pastor. Yep, you got it. See y'all.
Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.